I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. We started a series on the book of Ephesians a couple of weeks ago and we're down to what I believe are some of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. Paul's prayer for the church. Paul has, um, uh, well, uh, let me back up a little bit and, and restate some things that we've said before just for the sake of those of you that have been with us or um, uh, to re- remind you of some things that have been uh, said before. Uh, Paul is writing a, a letter to the Ephesians that's different than any other letter that he wrote. He's not trying to correct a problem in a church. He's not trying to address a, an issue or a situation or, or anything like that. Uh, but rather the book of Ephesians, uh, the letter that we know of is the book of Ephesians, is uh, more of a, 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 well, for lack of a better term, Paul seems to be stepping back and looking at the big picture of God more so than any other uh, letter that he writes. It's, it's not the uh, point-by-point doctrine of Romans. It's not the point-by-point correction or exaltation of Christianity over Judaism of Hebrews. It's uh, more of a, a stepping back and saying, here's God's overall plan and here's what he, here's what he has done and here's what he's going to do. And as such, the first uh, 14 verses of uh, chapter 1 is Paul talking about God's great plan of redemption. He's talking about the fact that we've been called out and chosen before the foundations of the world. He talks about uh, the fact that we've been accepted in the beloved. He gives us the same name, the same title as God gave Jesus himself when he spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He tells us that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he identifies that this was all because God wanted to. Didn't have anything to do with us. Uh, per se, in the, in the sense that we had earned it, because we didn't. This was something that was done before the universe was created, much less man, uh, much less before man was created. And, uh, and as such, he talks about God's great overall plan of redemption. God plans something that's beyond anything that we can even comprehend, yet the Holy Ghost reveals some of it to us. And that brings us to verse 15, where Paul is going to pray the prayer of the ages. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, (coughs) excuse me, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now it's interesting to me that Paul started praying for them when they heard of their faith and love. Now there's there's only two things that, uh, two ways we can interpret this. Either number one, he wasn't praying for them before he heard of their faith and love, or he's praying for them in a different way before he heard it. But the point is very simply this. There was a time in my life, it wasn't a long period of time, but there was a time in my life where I was walking uh, according to my own plan, my own path. I was saved, but I wasn't walking in fellowship with God. And as such, I was doing some things I shouldn't be doing, and I was in college at the time and and, um, just got involved in some stuff that I didn't have any business being involved in, things that I knew better all the time, but I was trying to be popular and get along with everybody else and just being a... Uh, a coward, really, not standing up for what I knew was right. And and as such, during that period of time, I had a lot of people praying for me. But folks, that's been um, 38 years ago. I've been walking with the Lord for 38 years. And I can tell you, walking in the Word, I mean, for 38 years, been saved for a lot longer than that. But uh, But I can tell you this, I've had more attacks of the devil come at me because I've been doing right than I ever had when I was doing wrong. 
But it seems like we have such an, in, uh, um, an inclination to pray for people that we see are doing wrong. Paul prayed for the people that were doing right. Paul prayed what I believe, and I'll say this over and over and over again this morning and, and maybe throughout the rest of the series. These are the most important words or some of the most important words that we have record of in, the, in, in all of the Scripture because it's a prayer that Paul prayed inspired by the Holy Ghost. Then the Holy Ghost inspired him to write it down so that we'd know what he's praying. And then the Holy Ghost saved it so that we'd have a record of it. How important is this? It's of utmost importance. We need to pray for each other once we're on the right track. Because that's the point where the devil's going to try to throw something in our path to get us off the right track. To discourage us. To turn us the other way. That's when we need to be praying for each other. I would submit to you this, folks. It's more important for us to pray for our fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, than it is to pray for the lost. Most people don't know what they're doing when they're praying for the lost anyway. They're praying, Lord, save Uncle so-and-so. Well, Jesus did that when he came to the earth and died on the cross. Most of the prayers that we pray for the lost or people that are doing the wrong thing are not prayers that are based on the word. But here's Paul giving us a Holy Ghost-inspired prayer to help people grow in the things of God which must be first and foremost on the mind of God to impress him to do so. Wouldn't you agree? So what does he pray? He says, from the time that I heard of your faith and love, the fact that you were on the right track, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Notice that Paul didn't stop thanking God for him. We need to do that for other believers. Rather than pick out each other's faults, we need to thank God for each other. And he ceased not to make mention of them in his prayers. Now what did he pray? What did he talk to God about for them or on their behalf? Notice he mentions three things. This prayer that he's going to pray over the next few verses mentions three things specifically. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know. And then he's going to mention three things. Let's talk about the first part. Notice he prays that God would give unto us them, us, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In what? In the knowledge of him. Now, folks, three things that Paul makes mention of is wisdom, knowledge, and revelation. Wisdom, knowledge, and revelation. Those are all three separate things. We think of wisdom and knowledge being the same thing, but they're not. Knowledge is an input. Knowledge is something we gain by information from the word of God. But wisdom is what it produces as it comes out of us and is put in practice in our lives. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. Nowhere does the Bible say ask God for knowledge. But it does tell you to ask him for wisdom. Because knowledge is our part. Gaining knowledge from the word of God is your responsibility. Gaining knowledge of the Word of God from the Word of God is your responsibility. It's up to you to know what the Bible says about your situation. So many times people come to me and they'll say, Pastor Mike, I need help. I need you to pray for me in this situation or whatever the case might be and that they're going through or experiencing. I'll say, well, what does the Word say? I used to say, well, the Word says this. And the Lord really quickened me on that and stopped me from doing that because I need to find out what the people know. It's not important that I know what the Bible says about your situation. It's important that you know what the Bible says about your situation. 
Because if I'm the only one that knows it, then I'm going to say it in the prayer and that's going to be it and you're going to forget it and it'll be gone. But if you know what the Bible says about your situation, then you can act on it. So it's important for you to know. Well, how do we gain knowledge? Knowledge comes through the Word of God. Now, I want you to notice something else. The knowledge he's talking about is not just a general knowledge of facts or things. He's talking about a personal knowledge of God. A personal knowledge of God. There's only one way you can personally know God, and that's through his word. Here's where the church has messed up for centuries. The church has had the idea that if we prayed, if we just loved God, then everything's going to be all right. And that's not the way that it goes. You know God one and only one way, and that's through his word. God and his word are one. If you don't know what the word of God says about him, about you, or about your situation... There's no way you can know what God's going to do. Consequently, the church has prayed for centuries. Lord, if it be your will. About all kinds of things that the Bible already tells us what the will of God is. If the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. Why would we pray, Lord, heal us if it's your will? But the church is ignorant by and large. The church at large is ignorant of the will of God because we don't have a knowledge of what the word says. That's our part. But wisdom is something else. Wisdom is the application. For example, I can know what the Bible says about my healing. I can know what the Bible says about my finances. I can know that scriptures are in there that cover my situation or whatever the situation is at hand. But if I'm not acting on it, if I'm not applying it, if I'm not confessing it and believing it and trusting God to make it a reality in my life, then there's no wisdom being applied in my situation. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Well, how do you properly apply the knowledge that comes from God's Word? By doing what the Word says to do. Believe it and speak it. That's wisdom. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the fear of the Lord? Putting God first. Well, doesn't that mean doing what His Word says to do? That's wisdom. And so Paul is praying that the church, the believers would be given by God the spirit of wisdom. Now, I want you to notice that. It's a spiritual thing. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's not asking God to give us knowledge. He's asking God to give us wisdom uh, wisdom and revelation concerning our knowledge. Now, what's revelation? Well, it goes on to say the eyes of our understanding being enlightened in the next verse. The eyes of our understanding. The word understanding literally means spirit. It's talking about the inner man. Now, where does revelation come from? Well, it's easy for us to say revelation comes from your spirit. Well, in a general sense, that's true. But in a specific sense, it's not. Revelation comes to the inward man. But what part of man? Revelation comes to the soul. The soul I'm speaking of is what the Bible speaks specifically when it's talking about the mind, the will, and the emotions. Revelation comes when your eyes, the eyes of your your mind, or let me say it this way, when the knowledge of God's word explodes in your mind to cause you to see what you didn't see before. That's not something that happens in your spirit. That's something that happens in your soul, which is part of the inner man. So when he's talking about the spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's not talking about that you would know things from the inside that you never knew before. He's praying that what your spirit already knows The knowledge of what your spirit already has will explode into your mind and you'll see it. And that's what happens. Very rarely does revelation come the first time we see a scripture. Very rarely do we look at the Bible and see a scripture we've never seen before and say, oh, wow, I see it. 
What more often happens, at least with me, is when we take a scripture that we've seen and known and read maybe a hundred times and read it again and all of a sudden something happens to where you see something about that scripture that you've never seen even though you have read it numerous times before. What happens? There's a spirit of revelation that comes. Now what causes that revelation to occur? It's the Holy Ghost. It's something that God gives you. Wouldn't it be nice if you had the the dial on revelation? I'd set mine wide open. And that's really what Paul's praying. Paul's praying that the spirit of revelation would be wide open with us. That God would grant unto us the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of our understanding, literally our soul, being enlightened that we may know three things. Number one, the hope of his calling. Secondly, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Thirdly, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Paul prays three things. He prays that we would know. Now, let me say this again. I can't emphasize this too much. I can't overemphasize this. God wants you to know three things. Why isn't there a list of 12 things? Why three? These are the three most important things that you can know as a believer. And they deal with past, present, and future. The first thing is the hope of his calling. Now, we've seen this word calling before in verse 4. It's the word chosen. It's where the Bible says, uh, uh, according as he has chosen us in him. That's the same word. It's the word called out. And it tells us that we were chosen or called out before him, before the foundations of the world. In other words, God had a specific plan for mankind before mankind ever existed. He called us out. He chose. He predestined us to us, meaning mankind, to be his family through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. So now he's talking about what we're called to. What is the hope of our calling? Well, he's talked before earlier in the chapter in God's master plan of redemption about the the redeeming of our bodies. He tells us about the first fruits of our inheritance. He tells us about the being sealed with the Holy Ghost. He's all he's pointing each of these things is pointing to the time when we will have the uh, the finished work of redemption, spirit, soul and body and will Jesus will come back to the church and we'll receive our redeemed bodies. So the hope he's talking about is future. Now, I want you to get this, folks, because please understand, God is no respecter of persons. And if God wants you to see the future in one area, he wants you to know the future in every area. God wants you to have revelation on the hope of your calling. We know, well, let me ask it this way. How many of you know that Jesus is coming back for the church? How many of you know that when that happens, we'll receive our redeemed bodies? We'll be caught up in the air with him and receive our redeemed bodies. How many of us have a revelation of that? Difference between knowledge and revelation. Apparently. I think we take for granted the things that we know and we don't look for further revelation on it. But this is what Paul is praying. He's saying, I know you know about this. He spent two and a half, well, up to three and a half years. We don't know exactly how long, but it was between two and a half and three and a half years in the city of Ephesus. And even though this letter, as we've talked about before, is not specifically addressed to Ephesus, we know that the letter will go there. And so he knows of the churches that he spent time in, the church at Ephesus was where he spent the longest. He knows what he's taught them. 
when he writes to the Thessalonians, he writes a lot to them about the rapture. He writes a lot to, to them about Jesus returning. And he only spent four months in Thessalonica. So if Paul's pattern in Ephesus was similar to his pattern in other churches, including Thessalonica, then we know that he talked a lot about Jesus coming back. Probably a lot more than we do. Maybe we should do more of it. But Paul is saying, I know you know this. I know that I taught you that Jesus is coming back. But I want you to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him coming back for you so that you really see what God's going to do. Why is that important? Isn't it enough just to know he's coming? Apparently not. Apparently not. The Bible talks about hope being the anchor of our soul. Do you realize most of the things you worry about are future? Very few people are worried about what's happening today. Now, they may be worried about what's happening today continuing tomorrow. But most of what the devil uh, tempts us with and attacks us with and causes us to worry about is, to, is uh, tomorrow in the future. Well, what's going to happen? What are they going to do tomorrow? What are my loved ones going to do? Are they going to be good to me? Or are they going to be bad to me? Is it, what's going to happen on my job? Most of this stuff is about tomorrow, about the future. The first thing that Paul prays that God would give us revelation about is your future. Now, as I said before, if God wants you to know your future as far as the redemption of your body, the rapture of the church, and I use those two terms interchangeably because they happen at the same time. If God wants us to know about those things, what, does he, what do you think he wants you to know about other things? There's a verse of scripture in, um, well, where is it? I wasn't planning to, to go to this one. It just came to me. Let me see if I can find it before I tell you where it is. Yeah, it's Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. God said, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. I like another translation. The NIV says it this way. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Well, if God wants us to know that he wants us to have a good future, wouldn't he want us to know what that is? See, one of the things, I don't know how much you rely on this stuff, but I rely on, on what Jesus said about the Holy Ghost a lot. One of the things that Jesus said about the Holy Ghost is he'll show you things to come. That's future, isn't it? I trust the Holy Ghost, who is the spirit of truth and spirit of reality, to guide me into the truth and to show me things to come, to bring things to my remembrance that Jesus said to us. And to, to show us things to come. To reveal the future. I want to know what's coming. Now, that doesn't mean God will show you every little detail about every little thing. But you can have a general sense. You can have a sense by the Holy Ghost of things to come so that you can prepare for it. I had the Lord tell me something just over this last weekend. I had the Lord show me something about my daughter for the next year. Took me completely by surprise. It's a good thing he told me because he's trying to get me ready for it. Now she's over there wondering what in the world is going on. <laughs> Honey, if you want to know, pray. Let the Holy Ghost tell you. God will show you things to come. He'll prepare you for things. I've got things that the Lord told me 12, 13 years ago that I know that are coming to pass. He tells you to prepare you. God wants you to be prepared for the rapture. 
And there's something about it. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I've got it and you don't have it. I want revelation about this too. But there's something about the explosion of the knowledge of God in your mind that changes everything about how you look at something. I, I can remember back to something the Lord gave me back in 1981, the summer of 1981, that changed everything about my outlook on God's blessing in my life. One scripture, one simple phrase in a scripture, wasn't even the whole thing. But one phrase in a scripture changed everything that, about how I looked at God's blessing in my life. Revelation changes you. It changes you. Don't, satisf- don't be satisfied and settle for knowledge. Get the revelation of the knowledge with it. They would know three things. The hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Whatever you're called to do individually as, an, as a believer... God's got a great end planned for you. Not just the end of your life when we receive our redeemed bodies, but the end of his calling on your life. Whatever work he's given you to do, there's a hope attached to that too. Those are the things that I seek after. Lord, show me. Show me my end. I want my latter days to be better than my early days. The Bible says God will satisfy you with long life. Uh, There's still some things I've got yet to go to be satisfied with. But those are things that we can look forward to. Those are things that can anchor our soul. Those are things that can keep us from worry and from the lies of the enemy. Second thing he prays is the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. We'd receive revelation to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now hope has to do with future. Inheritance has to do with present. Present tense inheritance because of a past tense work of Jesus. That we would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Thank God there's an inheritance. There is an inheritance. You have an inheritance in Jesus. Well, what is it? Well, generally we can say it's the same for all of us. In in general terms... Redemption or remission of sins belongs to all of us. That's part of our inheritance. Thank God for that. Healing's part of our inheritance. Jesus paid the price for that. The chastisement of our peace, our well-being, our prosperity was upon Jesus. So we have that as a part of our inheritance. But there are specific things that are part of the glory of his inheritance in you and for you that might be different than for me. Things pertaining to God's call and plan and purpose for your life. God has a very specific purpose. I don't know why, why, um, why this is, but it seems to me that so many times people that, uh, so many of the people that I went to school with, people that I went to Bible school with, people that I started off with in the Word with and, and stuff like that, they never had the specific information about God, what God wanted them to do in their life. And some of them, bless their hearts, have floundered around, tried this and tried that and tried the other thing, never really made a success at anything. Now, when I'm talking about success, there's all kinds of measures for success. You understand that. Some people might look at what I'm doing and say, well, he's not a success. Well, I am if I'm happy. I am if I'm satisfied in what God has given me to do. I might look at somebody else that's got more from an outward standpoint than I have. 
But if they're not in the will of God, then they're not a success. So there's a lot of measures for success. The biggest hurdle to, to cross as far as success, is, as far as I'm concerned, is to be satisfied from within knowing you're doing what God has for you. Because otherwise nothing else fits. I don't care how much money you got. I don't care how much prestige you've got. I don't care how big your house is or how nice your car is or whatever else. If you don't have something from within that's satisfied because you know that you're doing what God made you to do, the rest of it's just fluff. It'll be more of a burden than it will be a blessing. Well, I think the one thing that made a difference in me is I always, and I always prayed this for my kids, I always prayed, Lord, show them specifically what your plan and purpose is for their lives. I don't think there's any greater thing to know than that, is there? And I don't want to spend 20 years trying to figure it out. I want to know. I want to spend those 20 years doing what God has for me to do. Not trying to find out what it is. Well, why is that such a hard thing for some people to figure out? I think very simply comes down to two things. We don't spend the time with God in the word that we need to. And we don't spend the time with God in prayer that we need to. Prayer is a funny thing. Because everybody seems to know about it. Everybody can talk about it. It's a whole different thing when you get to praying with somebody. When I first got around Brother Hagin, Brother Hagin said, you can tell a person's spiritual development by listening to him pray. So I made sure whenever I was around Brother Hagin and we were praying, I got as far away from him as I could get. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you the truth. I did not want to hear him hear, let him hear me pray. Because I knew I didn't know anything about it. I'd heard all the teaching and all the tapes that everybody else has heard. And I can quote the same scriptures that everybody else is quoting. But there's a big difference between hearing it and doing it. You can read the driving handbook and that doesn't make you a good driver. Good drivers are the ones with experience. Good prayers are the ones with experience. You know who makes the best prayers? Well, let me say it this way. You know who makes the worst prayers? Intelligent people. My wife's a great prayer. I knew that's where she was going. I just had to throw that in. When I mean by intelligent people, I mean people that rely on their own thinking. See, the thing about intelligent people, people that think they're smart rely on their head for everything. And so they get in prayer and they thank God. Prayer is not thinking God. Prayer is praying. Prayer is praying. And prayer is relying on the Holy Ghost to give you the words to speak. And if you don't have them to speak, you speak in other tongues. What a great blessing speaking with other tongues is. What a a work the devil has done on the church in this world by denigrating speaking with tongues, ridiculing speaking with tongues. Because for so much of the church world, maybe the majority of the church world, they forfeit power in prayer because they're afraid of what people might think of them. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches. Think about those words. We say them fast and they kind of run together. But think about what he's saying. The riches. God's rich. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Not even to the saints. 
in the saints. You've got an inheritance that's resident in you now. And that inheritance is rich in glory. Now, when I think about rich in glory, I think about Jesus. I think about the things Jesus did. I think about the, the fact that, that Jesus was the, the, the shining example of God here on the earth. The light of the world. Everything about Jesus drew people to him. What was that? Same spirit of God that you got. He had the same life of God that's been given to you. I think Jesus walked in it to a greater degree than we do. I think he was aware of it. He was conscious of it more than we do. Now the Bible, don't get me wrong, the Bible doesn't say he had one thing more than you have. In fact, it says you have exactly what he has. Had and has. Well then why does it have a bigger impact in him? Why did it have a why did he have a bigger impact and influence on people around him than we seem to? I think he relied on it more. Maybe he had a greater revelation of what he had. Let me ask you something. Is there anything, any problem that you face, any situation that we encounter, is there anything that you and I will come upon in this life that Jesus has not already done the work to provide an inheritance for us to overcome? The answer has to be no. If it's anything other than no, then Jesus didn't do a complete work. If Jesus didn't do everything necessary to, to enable you and me to overcome in life, no matter what the situation or what the experience that we encounter then what's he doing sitting down at the right hand of the Father? The work of redemption is not complete. The Bible says he's made us more than conquerors. Over what? Over everything. The Bible says this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. What victory? Well, victory over everything. Victory over anything and everything the devil can do. Now, that doesn't mean we get instant results. There's a standing in faith. There's a process that takes place in many cases. But it doesn't change the truth that we have victory over whatever, anything and everything the devil can do. And it's all on the inside of you. One thing that I've noticed over the years is that uh, um, when people really start maturing and growing in the things of God, they quit looking for God to do things from the outside. They realize that the answer is within. The wisdom they need from God comes from within. The source of strength that they need from God comes from within. The healing power of God comes from within. So many people bless their hearts. So many people come to healing school and contact us in other ways. And they're looking for God to do something from the outside. They're looking for God to, to, to shine the light from heaven. The healing light from heaven down on them. To where they can feel it permeating their flesh. And affect a change in their bodies. That's not the way the Bible says it works. The Bible says he sent his word and healed them. Not sent some light from heaven. Not some ex external source of power. He sent his word and healed them. And the Bible says if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Then he quickens your mortal body. It comes from the inside. Not the outside. Quit looking to the outside. Quit looking to external things to be your answer. Your answer always comes from within. Your answer is always coming from the source of the life of God that dwells within you. 
That's where the riches of the glory of your inheritance lie, from within. You mean, Pastor Mike, I've already got everything that I'll ever need on the inside of me? Yeah. Well, why don't I know that? Because we don't have the revelation of it yet. We have the knowledge of it. The Bible gives us the knowledge of it. But can you see how we need wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who he is and what he's done? Second thing he prays is that we would be enlightened. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the work that Jesus has accomplished would explode upon our minds to cause us to realize the riches of the glory of his inheritance in in us now, in the saints. The third thing that he prays for is power, but not power from the outside. So many of the church world are praying, oh, God, give us power. God, give us power. That's not what Paul's praying. Paul is impressed by the Holy Ghost to pray that we'd have a revelation of the power that we already have. Now, folks, I want you to understand, Paul doesn't pray that God gives us any one thing except revelation of what we already have. He's not praying that God, asked, that God would provide one thing more to us than they already have. He's not praying, I pray that God would strengthen you in some mighty way so that you'd have something extra. He's simply praying that their eyes would be open, their minds literally would be open to the revelation of what already belongs to us and resides in us. Quit looking to the outside. The answer is within. The third thing he prays is that we would, uh, our eyes would be enlightened to know the, the hope of his calling, number one, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, number two, and number three in verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. The exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. In all the New Testament, Paul's the only one that uses the word exceeding. It's a Greek word that means hyper or super. Now notice he's talking about the power when he talks about superpower. Literally, he's saying, and what is the exceeding, the super greatness of his power that works in us in, as believers? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 19 is very uh, unusual. Uh, It's grammatically difficult in the Greek language because there are, in the New Testament, there are five words that are translated into the English power. Five different words. Paul uses four of them in verse 19. The first word that he uses is the word translated power. What is the exceeding greatness of his power? This is the word dunamis. It means stored ability. The second word that he uses is working. It's the word energia. It's an outward display of power. For example, if somebody came into the room that was a big bodybuilder type, all muscled up and everything, we might look at him and say, wow, there's, that guy's got great power. Well, what we mean is his muscles are big enough to store power. But until he lifts something or works, does something with his muscles, we can't see that power in action. Dunamis is the stored power. Energia is the, the active power. It's power in action. The third word that he uses is mighty. This word mighty is the word kratos. It's where we get our English word democratic. It means ruling power. And then the fourth word, translated power, is the last word in the verse. It's iscus. And it means endowed power. It means the power that someone would have when they took over the kingdom of the, of the, of the throne of a kingdom. 
was set in place as a ruler or a king. So literally what he's saying is that he's praying that their eyes would be enlightened to know what is the exceeding greatness of God's inherent power that works according to his ruling place as king of the universe. Then he tells us how, what that power is like, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. Folks, you need to understand something. If the death of Jesus was the supreme expression and demonstration of God's love for mankind, then the resurrection was the supreme expression and demonstration of his power in action. And Paul is saying, inspired by the Holy Ghost, Paul is saying that when Jesus was raised from the dead, God used every bit of his power to set him free from spiritual death. The Bible says Jesus was first, the first begotten from the dead. That can't be the grave because there were people that were raised from the grave before he was. So when it says the first begotten or firstborn from the dead, and it also says firstborn of many brethren, it's got to be talked about firstborn of spiritual death. He was the first person born again. Jesus was born again. Now, if he, had, if he didn't die spiritually, he had no need to be born again. Now, I know that's controversial for a lot of folks. And I know some people get upset when I say this. And they think I talk too much about it. But folks, the reason that I do talk about it is because every time that I focus on the fact that Jesus died spiritually as my substitute, it makes me appreciate him more and more. I've noticed that the people that refuse to acknowledge that Jesus, even the possibility that Jesus died spiritually and went to the belly of the earth, literally the hell of hells, the lower part of hell where the spiritually dead were. People that refuse to acknowledge even the possibility of that, their concept of God is very, very small. It's all this, uh, well, maybe I should say it this way. It's impersonal. It's this God on the throne that's somehow pulling strings and moving people around like pieces on a chessboard. But they have no knowledge of who he is. They have no knowledge of his will. They have no knowledge of his goodness and his kindness. It's all this, well, we hope all things work together for our good. Somehow, some way. But you never know what God's going to do. I don't believe that's what God wants us to know about him. I don't believe that's the way he wants us to see him. Do you? I believe he wants us to know specifically. As much as we're able to comprehend exactly what Jesus did for us. So that we not have to experience it for ourselves. So when Jesus was first born, the, the firstborn from the spiritually dead, from spiritual death, God used all of his power. You know, it's an interesting thing because the Bible tells us different things about creation. Psalm 8.3 says that when God created the stars in the universe, he used his fingers, literally flicked the stars into the sky. Hebrews 1.10 says that when God made the earth, he formed it with his hands. Well, that makes sense. There are rocks out there in the universe that are just reflecting light from suns and solar systems billions and billions of miles away. No need for God to be specific or take care about those. But when it came to the earth, he was making a home for his greatest creation, which is man. So he used his hands. But in Isaiah 53, verse 1, it says, To who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? 
when it comes to redemption, when it comes to the plan of salvation being accomplished through the work of Jesus, it says God used his arm. Now, what do you have more strength in, your fingers, your hand, or your arm? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying this was the display, the greatest display of God's power is when he raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because he wanted you to have an inheritance. He wanted you to have the hope of the full fulfillment, the completion of the plan of redemption, not just spiritual redemption, not just to renew our minds to the truth, but so that the, the, the residue, the remnant of sin and our experience with sin could once and for all be wiped away by our redeemed bodies. And that we'd know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to be used by you. Now, folks, I'm going to say it again. There's a huge difference, huge difference between having the knowledge that the power of the name of Jesus is ours and the revelation that it's in us and available to us now. And that's what Paul's praying. That we know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power, 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 which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And didn't just raise him from the dead, but his resurrection was twofold. Born again and seated in heavenly places, just like yours. Set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Where is that place? Far above. Everybody say far above. How far above is far above? He didn't say a little bit above. Now the the things he's going to mention are things that we recognize as under the devil's control and influence. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. He's saying that God has raised Jesus to be seated at his right hand and given him a name that's far above anything that the devil can do, has ever done, or could ever imagine to be able to do. Far above. Far above. You know, there are comparisons that Paul uses throughout his uh, uh, letters to the church, the writings that uh, that we have record of to the church. And over and over again, it talks about much more, and he makes different, uh, uses different words to, to make those comparisons. In every case, including this one, far above, in every clay, case, he uses Greek words that mean, I'm trying to make a comparison so that you'll get the point, but it's so far above that it shouldn't even be compared together. That's what his comparisons are really about. He's not saying, well, you got this on one hand and this on the other hand. You know, that's the way the people think that that the devil works and fought against God. There was a great war in heaven and a third of the angels went with the devil. And boy, he struggled and he fought and God barely won out. And that was only because he had two-thirds of the angels, I guess. He outnumbered him. But there's no bigger lie possible. The devil used every bit of his power to try to overthrow the kingdom of God. And God said, get out. Jesus talked about the devil falling to the earth. He said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning. Well, you know how that works. Slow and easy and gradual. God cast Satan out with a loud bang. 
And that wasn't even the greatest display of his power. The greatest display of his power was in the resurrection of Jesus. Seated him in his right hand and gave him a name that is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Folks, if that power is really yours, if this verse is true, if that power is really yours, what kind of problems should we be having with the devil? You can always tell where somebody is by listening to them talk about what trouble they have with the devil. And oh boy, that's a major theme for the church, isn't it? What does that mean? It means they don't have a revelation of the power that's in them. Remember, this power works in us as believers. This power and this name that's above, far above all principality and power and might and every name that can be named, not only in this world but in that which is to come. Realize anything that's got a name is under the name of Jesus. Anything that has a name is subject to the, uh, to the power of the name of Jesus. If you can name it, then it's under the power of Jesus. Was well, there anything that doesn't have a name? Even if you have to make up a name for it, it's got a name. Paul is taking a big picture view and he's saying, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God above all the universe. And not just this universe, not just what we see and know here. And, and remember when Paul is writing this, I don't know what his scientific background is. I don't know how much he knew about the universe. He knew about Greek mythology and the stars and all that kind of stuff that, that, that's part of all that, that ideology or whatever, philosophy, whatever you want to call it. But I don't know what he knew about the universe. Did he know more about the universe than we do? Did he know less about the universe than we do? I don't know. But he knows enough by the Holy Ghost that the name of Jesus is far above anything and everything that can be named in, not only in this universe, but also in the ages to come. What does that mean? I have no idea. But I know in chapter 2 it says that God's gonna, it's going to take God ages to show us just how good and kind he is towards us. Verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I'm going to rearrange this for, for greater understanding. Gave him a name far above all principality and power and might and dominion and so forth, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, and has put all things under his feet. Folks, I want you to understand, his feet is in the body. Jesus is referred to as the head. Now, let me ask you a question. What good would a head, let's say we, we could detach somebody's head and set it on the table. What good would that head do? Let, let, maybe it still talks. Maybe it still thinks. You've seen these science fiction movies where brains are in these big globes and still running stuff. Well, imagine if a head was here sitting on the table right there in front of you, looking around the room with his eyes, <laughs> thinking and taking in everything that's going on, able to make all kinds of plans, 
maybe the smartest head in the, in the universe. What good is it if it can't carry out its plans? That's the picture that Paul gives us by the Holy Ghost. And Paul is the only New Testament writer that uses the church as the body of Christ. He's the only one that uses the example of the head and the body. I wonder if that has anything to do with him meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. Remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I doubt very seriously if, if, if Saul, who became Paul, had any idea he was persecuting Jesus. He thought he was persecuting these Christians that were denouncing Judaism. But Jesus shows him, you hurt my people, you're hurting me. Jesus told him right off the bat. Now, whether he realized this to begin with or not, or it was something over the years that God revealed to him, that's more in line with my thinking, that he saw it over time. But who knows? But he realized that Jesus and his people on the earth, his church, are one. And that's what he's telling us here by the Holy Ghost. Gave him through the head over all things, to the church, which is his body. To the church, which is his body. What good is that? That means that the all things that Jesus is above, the principalities and the power and the might and the dominion that Jesus is above, far above, means the church is far above it too. How far? Far above. How far is that? Far enough not to have any trouble with them. Doesn't mean we won't be uh, attacked. Doesn't mean there won't be things that the devil throws in our way. Doesn't mean that there won't be things we don't have to believe for. But there's nothing the devil can do that can outstrip or outweigh or outlast the power that's in the name of Jesus. Now stop and think about it for a minute, folks. If the church really believed this and understood this and believed it, if the church had a revelation of who we are in Christ Jesus, how would our world be different? If the church had an understanding, a revelation that they had the same power to overcome the work of the devil that Jesus did while he was here on the earth and even really it's even greater than that. But we'll just use that for a, for a point of reference. If we had the same power to overcome the work of the devil as Jesus had and used when he was here on the earth, how would our world be different? How would your world be different? Jesus didn't have enough to eat, didn't have enough to feed the crowd, so he multiplied loaves and fishes. They ran out of wine, so he turned water into wine. He was without transportation, sent the disciples ahead in the boat, so he walked on the water. All of those are a part of the inherent power that works in us as believers. Now, I don't believe Jesus came to the water's edge and said, okay, Father, you know I'm supposed to be on the other side tomorrow. Let's see. What am I going to do here? And then reasoned it out. Wait a minute. I'm the son of God. That means even though I laid aside my heavenly power and glory to come to the earth, I've been anointed of the Holy Ghost, and all things are possible to him that believes. 
So let's see. I believe I can walk on it. Don't feel too solid. I think that's what we do. We come to a problem and we try to figure it out. We try to assume or, or try to, to identify with what does the Bible say that will help me in this situation instead of really having a revelation of who we are. In many cases, I think we use faith like a spare tire. We wait till our tire goes flat and then we try to find a fix for it. Faith is a lifestyle, not a fix. Paul's talking about praying. He's talking about believing God. He's talking about walking with God. He's talking about seeing things, spiritual truths with our understanding in such a way that when we come to the problem, they just walk on the water without even giving it a thought. As far as Jesus is concerned, what's the difference in walking on water or dry land? He made them both. Paul seems to be indicating by the Holy Ghost that that's available to us. Now, I know that's too hard for some people to accept. I get it. And I don't think we can accept it casually. I think it has to be something that becomes a matter of study, a matter of prayer, and a matter of meditation. But make no mistake about it, folks. The Bible says it's available. The Bible says this place in God, this place in Christ Jesus, seated with him in heavenly places, this place available through God's master plan of redemption because God wanted it this way. Not because we're trying to make it be so. It's available to us. This is how God sees the operation of the church in the world. I'm sure in heaven, there's a lot of head shaking going on. At least with the angels who say, why don't they just use what they've got? We come upon the same situations we see described in Scripture. That Jesus, see how Jesus handled them. And what do we do? We yield to them. And I'm sure in heaven the angels are looking at each other, shaking their heads. Some are probably saying, I'm glad that's not my guy. A lot of amazement. Why don't they just use what they've got? Well, you can't use what you don't know you have. And that's what Paul's prayer is about. That we come to know what we have. That we come to know what we have. Folks, Jesus died for a lot more than just you sauntering through life with your bills paid, enough food on the table, maybe talking to somebody about Jesus here and there, and living a life that has little impact and influence on others. Jesus died for you to change the world. That's what he died for. I think we sell out so short what we've been given because we take it for granted. We don't stop to realize what do we have. That, if anything, that's Paul's purpose for this letter is to make us stop and realize there's, a, there's information given by the Holy Ghost that identifies that the church is in charge of God's creation to accomplish His plan and purpose in the earth. Amen? Amen.
Praise the Lord. Well, we want to receive communion this morning. What a better time than talking about what belongs to us in Christ Jesus than to celebrate the death of our Lord for the purpose of our resurrection. Amen.